Laura Johnston put on hockey pads over the weekend and got body checked by her own son in her first endeavor in hockey. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Laura, as well as Layla Tassi and Lisa Garvin. And Laura, you look like you had a great time. Oh, it was so much fun. There was like a bunch of us moms that got at, got into the gear and got to play with our 12-year-olds and uh, it was the first time I've ever gotten to do it. And I really understand why my son is obsessed with hockey. It was just like intoxicating to be out in the ice and, and feel the, the puck on your, on your stick when I did get the puck very rarely. So yeah, I'm all for it. And you said it was a, a light body check and that he was complaining that they couldn't be rough because moms were on the ice. Right, exactly. Moms and then some little kids. They were like, oh, <laughs> I can't even really, really play. But he said my son set up the the phone on the side of the boards and like so he could videotape me getting checked into the board (laughs) (laughs) all right well let's begin we got some news to talk about an independent audit of the pay scandal that resulted in the firing of metro health ceo akram boutros is in and things look even worse for boutros lisa what does this audit say about him and the chief financial officer who just quit Yeah, there's a lot of incriminating stuff in this independent audit that was done by the BDO accounting firm. They found that uh, Butchers created the bonus program without HR or board knowledge, but it was known by Chief Financial Officer Craig Richmond, who resigned last Wednesday. He did forward these bonuses for payroll approval, but did not confirm that the board authorized it. Also, Butchers included himself in supplemental bonus pools without approval and failed to disclose supplemental pay to both the uh, Metro Health, compensation consultants, and others on multiple occasions. And Butchers also calculated his own bonus payouts and did his own self-evaluations. So apparently there were two bonus plans, one that was board approved and the other that was created by Butchers. Over a dozen people were interviewed while they were compiling this independent audit. One of them was board member Terry Monley, who resigned in December for health reasons, but he defended Butchers in his resignation letter. So Boutrous' attorney, Jason Bristol, says that BDO is suspect because they were hired by the same law firm that produced the initial biased and uh, incomplete report on this audit scandal. Yeah, that's kind of a ridiculous claim. BDO is a respected firm. They've done lots of work. They're, they weren't related to this at all. They came in independently. And, and it was striking because they say, as clearly as it can be said, that Boutros basically secretly created a second bonus program, didn't tell the board, kept it, took multiple steps to keep his pay from the board, and it lists them one after another, including a records request with us, I mean, it shows a very, very intentional, deliberate effort to increase his pay without the people he answers to knowing. And then the financial director got hammered because he just carried this stuff out without ever checking to see if it was board approved. Well, and and that's actually kind of vindication in a way, because we've been saying all along in this podcast and in our stories is that how could he have gotten away with this? How could Boutrous have gotten away with this? He had to have had some help or complicity or something somewhere. And it finds that there was. Yeah. He's been saying from the beginning, I had full authority to do this. This was that the board gave me this authority. The BDO audit says, absolutely not. You didn't have that authority. You did it on your own. And at multiple steps, you worked to conceal it. It's very damning 
report. And I, I suspect that when we get the state audit, Keith Faber's office is doing a full audit, we'll see even more expansion into these areas. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio Republicans are working on a flat tax bill that would have profound impacts on organizations that many voters in Northeast Ohio have supported on taxes. Layla, why are the Republicans looking to reduce what these organizations get when we all went to the polls and in fairly large numbers said we want them to have the money? Well, so Lucas, Lucas DePrilli spoke to leaders at a number of local agencies that voters here generally support when they ask for financial su- support. And in the case of the Metro Parks, for example, 77% of voters approved their latest 2.7 mil, 2.7 mil levy in November. And Lucas learned that if House Bill 1 passes, these agencies are going to find themselves facing very serious budgetary problems that could force them to either cut services or go back to voters for support. So House Bill 1 would create a flat state income tax rate at 2.75% for all earners, except those who make less than $26,050. And it would reduce the amount of a property that can be taxed from 35% to 31.5% and freeze the amount people pay in property taxes even when their home value increases. And House Bill 1 also says it would pay for the tax reductions by no longer sending $1.2 billion in what's known as rollbacks to local agencies. And that includes the local governments, schools, libraries, parks, all of those agencies we're talking about here. Under the rollback system, the state government has paid 10% of property tax collections to those local governments. And government entities throughout Cuyahoga County received $183.6 million through that rollback program in 2022. If, if that goes away, it could be just devastating for those local institutions. It could cost Cleveland Metro Parks between $90 million to $100 million over the next 10 years. The Cuyahoga County Library System would also be affected. They're, they they said that they receive $8.3 million. They would receive $8.3 million less than they're currently receiving. That's equal to 9% of their library budget. 8.3 million is roughly the same size as the library system's entire budget for purchasing materials like books and audiobooks. And then try C, they could lose 5.9 million and Cleveland schools could lose up to 24 million per year on account of this. And of course, you know, the bill proponents pitch this as a way to lower taxes and simplify the system and increase consumer spending by putting more money in taxpayers' pockets. Of course, it disproportionately affects the wealthy. 89% of the value of tax relief under HB1 would go to households that make more than $124,000 per year. And proponents say that that was intended to encourage those families to stay <laughs> in Ohio. So, yeah, so it's it's uh, it's it's to to see the the impact on the back end of this is really concerning, and everyone should pay attention because these are things that affect our everyday lives, and and voters have overwhelmingly supported these institutions. Yeah, the the, the lines in the story about how this will attract more people to live here is just cuckoo bird. Really, I think this is part of the Republicans at the state house. They don't like government. And every step they take, it's to try and quash government. These these taxes fund things that we all want. We've all approved them and they're trying to sabotage them. And, and it makes no sense it, it, to take that money away from libraries and schools and the metro parks and put it into the pockets of the wealthy is just a crime, really, because of right. how badly this will affect so many people. 
And it feels kind of like a shell game, right? Or like smoke and mirrors that they're they're cutting. They appear to be cutting taxes, but they're really shifting more of the tax burden on on the local community because we will have to support these institutions that we depend upon and love. So they're going to come back to us and ask for more, and we're going to have to pay it. So it's it's really not going to be savings in the Except long run. Except we're going to have to pay more, right? Because the income is not going to match that and it'll be end up being property taxes or something like that. So I completely agree with you, Layla. And it's not just a shell game. It's take, I mean, really, you could argue it's taking from the rich and then the rest of us are going to have to pay more when they ask. No, it's not taking from the rich. It's giving money to the rich. Exactly. Lisa, were you trying to say something? Oh, sorry. No, no. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were trying to say something. I was just going to mention that Lucas Lucas points out in the story that the state has been cutting income taxes for 20 years, and it hasn't had the effect that these <laughs> proponents are saying. The population has continued to decline for, for two decades. Yeah, it, the, the, the motive, I think, really is it's an anti-government. They, they want to shrink government, and it's any government, libraries, schools, whatever. It's, a, it's aimed at that. And look, let's face it. These things fall disproportionately on the urban areas, which the legislators in Columbus are proving more and more they pretty much despise. They take so many steps to harm the cities while vilifying cities as crime havens in their campaigning. This is an ugly, ugly thing. I wonder what will happen. There's no companion bill yet in the Senate, right? I I don't know. I have not heard that. Um, So probably not. Maybe there'll be cooler heads in the Senate and they won't do something that's so devastating. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is race impacting algorithms used in diagnostic tools and medical guidelines and what might be done to fix that, Laura? This was a fascinating story from Gretchen Kuda-Croen, and I had no idea that for so many years, race has been used as a shortcut to in algorithms to determine who gets help and what care they get. And it's all independent. It's not like all the doctors in the world got together and said, okay, this is the formula that we're going to use. Every specialty talks among themselves, looks at the, the research, and then decides these things. And, and it really disproportionately hurts people of color. Now there's a growing movement to abolish the use of race in clinical tools and replace it with the underlying economic conditions that they were talking about in the first place. Things the reasons for health disparities, where people live, what their diet is, how much exercise they're getting, and and background from people. So in some areas of medicine, this has led to swift, clear changes in policy. Others are really slow to act. And it's been a systemic problem. So heart disease, for one example that Gretchen gives, a heart failure risk score was designed to predict the risk of for, of death for, for patients admitted to the hospital and assigns three additional points to any patient who is not black. So the effect is that black patients are considered lower risk and they might not get to see a cardiologist, at least not in the same speed. I'm amazed that this continues to be a problem. I, I, I wouldn't have been surprised that 25 years ago it's a problem, but I thought we would have had this corrected by now. I completely agree with you. I was I was stunned. And there, she has example of after example of ways that this is hurting people. Uh, the good news is some people have been really quick to change. But this is so recent. 2020 is the first paper that came out on this and really c- caused a ruckus and, and made people re- 
consider their use of race. And that was in uh, New England Journal of Medicine. And they said these race corrections are rooted in real differences observed between black and white patients, but they need to adjust for the actual reasons that they see the differences. There's no genetic component to race. Well, it's a good story. She did. Check it out. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. If all goes according to schedule, today or tomorrow, the jury in the Larry Householder corruption case will begin deliberating whether he is guilty in the biggest bribery scandal ever to rock the state. But Lisa, the main charge is racketeering, and using that in this case is breaking new ground. It was a law originally cre- created to go after mobsters. What, why are so many people watching this? Well, apparently this House Bill 6 trial is the first time that the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations, or RICO Act, has been used on a nonprofit 501c4. It's typically used against organized crime, drug cartels, and, and so forth. This is the first time that RICO has been used in, in this manner in Ohio and perhaps the very first in this country. So they use this to highlight Generation Now, the nonprofit dark money group and how it was used to launder bribe money. Generation Now pled guilty in 2021 along with its president and secretary, Jeff Longstreth. So David DeVillers, the former U.S. attorney for the Ohio Southern District who brought the charges in this case, he said, if we wanted to create a perfect mechanism to launder money, we did it with a five 501c4. So that kind of brings in the organized crime element here. He says 501c4s are not really enforced. And they found when they were doing investigating this case, it was really hard to access IRS records. Nothing named the donors, so they kept hitting dead ends. Um, case Western Reserve University law professor Michael Benza says it's like a mob bar or any legitimate cash business that fronts, you know, organized crime. He says it's a cash business and you can easily move money around without detection. And OSU political science professor Ned Hill said this is a really important case for the DOJ and they hope it goes their way because he says it will establish if there will be limits on 501c4s in the future and will also establish whether we have corporate thuggery or not. Well, think about, though, Dave DeVillers. He was a Republican appointee as the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Ohio, and he's basically describing the dark money law as legalized money laundering. I mean, that's staggering in its statement that you've created a system where corporations can legally do things that should never be legal. And the money we found during the trial that money flowed, you know, from from bribery checks through Generation Now, through other nonprofits. So the money never really it just kept moving, you know, yeah, so but- it certainly makes the case for Generation Now being a, you know, a money laundering business. You would love to see a bipartisan effort to fix this law. It would be great to see J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown, for instance, getting together and say, okay, this is ridiculous. This was an abuse. We've created a law that allows for really terrible things to happen to the public. Let's change the law. It just shouldn't be legal. This, the fact that the, the investigators had such a hard time following the money is all the evidence you need. Great story by Adam on this. The, uh, the We've all talked about racketeering for years because they've used it for non-mobster cases before, but using it in a political case like this is very innovative. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We were all 
so shocked by the $1.1 billion that was bet on sports in Ohio in January that we asked reporter Sean McDonald to drill down into that number. Layla, what did he find? Well, Ohio's $1.1 billion in bets in January was second only to New York, where just under $1.8 billion were, of bets were placed. And all of those bets translated into about $200 million in taxable revenue for the betting companies. That's $21 million in, in taxes to the states. The majority of, of the bets went to the mobile betting apps like FanDuel or DraftKings. Industry experts predict that Ohio will eventually bring in about – uh, $845 million in revenue each year, but hitting that mark could be years away. But in drilling into all of this, Sean made some observations that add some important context to these numbers. Ohio's gambling industry obviously had one of the most lucrative months among other states where it's legal, but some of that can be attributed to the fact that sports gambling is completely new here and people were eager to get into it. And also there were a lot of promotions that these companies were running, including offering credits for gambling, which very likely inflated the number of bets that were placed. He he said he can we can probably expect that trend to last through the first year of sports betting in Ohio at at least. It also matters how many sports books are available in Ohio compared to other states, and of course, what our population is compared to others. Some of the states where it's legal have you know half the the number of of uh, residents as we do. And another observation that I thought was interesting is. It's hard to tell what people are betting on. And the companies, they don't share that information for competitive reasons, and they're not required to report them to regulators in Ohio. So it's hard to tell what kinds of sporting events are driving the trend here. One example that Sean cited is Ohio had $21 million in voided bets during January. So we don't know how much of that was tied to the Bills-Bengals game where DeMar Hamlin suffered cardiac arrest and the game was canceled. I mean, it's likely, but we don't know. And so there, there are so many more fascinating observations in Sean's story. You should check it out. Cleveland. Yeah, and I don't know you'll even be able to read into the February numbers to get a difference because I would think that football, NFL football, was the big driver of the, the betting, but wasn't the Super Bowl in, in the early February. So we would still have NFL betting in February. It might take until the March numbers come in to see if you can deduce that it's football that drives it, which a lot of people suspect. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But 1.1 billion. I mean, that really made my head <laughs> no, spin. <it's... laughs> I mean, it's interesting, though, because it, it quite, I mean, obviously, people were winning, people were winning. So um, I can see how that would fuel this trend to continue. I bet we'll see it for months to come that we're leading the nation. Yeah. And I bet sometime next year, around this time, we will start to see some evidence of the gambling addiction problems that result from it. Yeah. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've had a number of Northeast Ohio movie theaters close recently, and that raises the question, is the movie theater business in peril? Reporter Joseph Morona set out to find out. Laura, as we've talked in the newsroom about this, you say, oh, I hope they don't go out of business. I love going to the movies, but you hardly ever go. So is that kind of a microcosm of what this story is about? Yes, but Joey's optimistic that this is not the end of the movie business or the theater business, really. And he goes through the four that have closed since the beginning of the year, and they're all closing for different reasons. It's not just that they're all the same 
and everybody says, oh, we can't make it anymore because of COVID. Uh, Solon AMC closed. That was a classic theater, as uh, Layla has talked about on this podcast. That's, you know, if you don't have recliners, what are you doing in the theater business? Exactly. Anymore? So that's, <laughs> that's one reason. Uh, Chagrin Cinemas uh, closed on January 22nd. It was a new landlord. They want to redevelop the site into a different business. And then there's two Regal uh, cinemas that closed, Great Northern and Montrose. They were the casualties of the Cineworld's effort to save $22 million annually because the company is in trouble. I mean, I don't think anyone would argue that movies are booming right now. They only had 71 movies released on 2,000 or more screens last year. Compare that to 112 in 2019. A lot of places are just releasing on streaming. Which gets you, which puts you on tens or hundreds of millions of screens. Right. But you're not selling popcorn there. Right. And and you're not having that community effect. And I don't have a recliner that is as comfortable as the ones in the movie theaters. (laughs) So Joey points to Avatar The Way of Water that they made two point two six billion so far and counting third on the list of all time highest grossing movies. So if you have the right movie. And, th- and there are going to be more released in the theaters this year that there's still people that want to go to the theater. And the one time I went last year it was to see the Top Gun sequel with my son. And it was so busy. We had to sit in the front row. The I don't know if you saw it. I can only presume that Skip Paul, who designs The Plain Dealer, put it together. But running with this story in the print edition was a 1997 version of the movie ad that ran in the Plain Dealer with red X's on every theater that's now gone. Well, and Joey put that in the digital version as oh, well. Did. Yes. Okay. So Joey went and found that and it's Titanic, but he actually counted and there's still the same number of theaters. So a lot of those have closed, but he's saying that overall, I think the number was 34, but I didn't put that in my notes that there's still that same number of theaters because new ones have opened since then. So that was, yeah, 1997. I, I mean, Layla, I remember seeing Titanic. I know my sister saw it like six times in the theater. Oh, Probably yeah. Probably everyone on this podcast saw Titanic in the theater, right? <laughs> yes, no. of course. No. Wait, <laughs> I didn't Lisa see and Ti- Chris were no? Yeah. Well, I don't know about Chris, but I didn't see Titanic for about 10 years after it came out. Yeah. Oh, no, I saw it in the theater. I, that, that was there. That was, uh, I, I was a recent um transplant to the cleveland area i moved here in 96 so where did you see the titanic it was in cleveland heights theater that's closed uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> have you guys though seen 3d movies in the yep. theater yes. yeah i saw the first avatar in 3d and it was amazing <laughs> I loved it, and I think they should make more movies in 3D, and then I would go back to the theater to watch yeah, them all. I, I, really, I really didn't like that movie, but my dog had died the day before, and I think that had something to do Aww. with my mood on the day. I'm sure, so, yeah. So, not a fan. It's Today in Ohio. We don't often see a suburb as a defendant in a wrongful conviction case, but Cleveland Heights settled the case last week for some big dollars. Who was the man who was wrongfully convicted, and how much time did he lose from his life? Lisa. 46-year-old Christopher Miller settled this wrongful conviction lawsuit against Cleveland Heights for $4 million. He was sentenced to 40 years, but he served 16 years for the 2001 rape and robbery of a Cleveland Heights woman in her Euclid Heights Boulevard apartment by two attackers. Detectives tracked her purse was stolen at the time, and detectives tracked her stolen cell phone to Miller. Uh, The Ohio Innocence Project in 2017 got a judge to order DNA testing 
of evidence which exonerated Miller. And then Common Pleas Judge Kelly Ann Gallagher declared him wrongfully imprisoned in August of 2021. Um, he Miller sued Cleveland Heights in 2020 in federal court. And the city and the police department are denying wrongdoing and liability in this case. Uh, city spokesman Mike Thomas says trying a lawsuit over events from 22 years ago poses substantial risk for both sides. Miller's attorney, Sarah Gelsimino, says, I think he's entitled to a lot more since he lost 16 years of his life. But she, he, she said this allows him and his family to finally move forward. I don't know. What do you think, folks? I think $4 million is an admission of guilt. That's a lot of money. Yes. For a city of that size, yeah. Yeah. To say, oh, we concede nothing. It's like, yeah, you're conceding $4 million of precious tax dollars because of bad, bad operating by the police department. It's interesting because we see Cleveland. Cleveland's bill for this stuff is, man, it must be over $100 million by the time we're done. But you don't really see it much in the suburbs. I can't think of a, a precedent case. Anybody? Mm, no, no, mm-mm. no. So Cleveland Heights, rare company. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The brand new Westside Market Board of Trustees, part of Cleveland Mayor Justin's Bibbs vision for reviving the moribund market, had its first meeting last week. It was a big moment because it's the transfer of control. But Layla, did they do anything? Uh, kinda. <laughs> I mean, the Cleveland Public Market Corporation is this 15-person board of community leaders who are going to, as you said, assume the management of the market from the city, even though the city will maintain ownership of the place. And among their first orders of business were kind of what you would expect. They named their leaders. At the top of that list are the president, who will be Dave Abbott, the retired president of the George Gunn Foundation. And the secretary is Tanisha Velez, owner uh, of the Cleveland Fresh Microgreens. And uh, the treasurer will be Tom McNair, the executive director of Ohio City, Inc. That's the community development corporation of the Ohio City neighborhood where the market is located. And the board is still searching for an executive director. They've interviewed about 100 applicants so far. They'd really like to have this person in place by summer so they can transition operations fully by September before the vendors hit their busiest season around the holidays. And then we'll also expect to see phase two and phase three of their master plan coming out soon. But reporter Paris Wolf tells us that at the end of this first meeting, a couple of the leaders from the market's community of vendors express their optimism. It clearly seems they've been waiting a long, long time for this kind of change in management. One of the vendors said it's like a dream that it's actually happening. So very, very monumental. But, you know, they kind of did the uh, the nuts and bolts sort of bookkeeping stuff in this first well, meeting. Well, the, the vendors who are notoriously cranky can can spin on a whim. <laughs> what You need to get off to a good start with something like this. It's got to have some good progress. And they do have a good board. I mean, Dave Abbott is, it is likely a good board. to be a very strong leader because you, you have to show that vision. People want to see that this is a good idea and that this can be brought back to its prominence. So you like what you see so far, although they haven't done a whole lot. I won't be surprised if the vendors six months from now are saying, no, oh, this was a terrible idea. This board is terrible because uh, they pretty much have groused the entire time I've lived in Cleveland. Uh, the public was allowed to attend. There had been a question about whether they were going to try and have closed meetings, which would have been a terrible look for transparency. I don't think Dave Abbott, who used to be a journalist, right, would be in favor of having closed meetings. 
Yeah, it seemed that once the question was brought up of whether it would be open, they they quickly acquiesced and said, "Oh yes, yes, the public's welcome." Right? I don't I don't feel like we had to fight very hard for that access. No, we just got a note saying we don't know if it's going to be open, and I think very quickly it was, "Oh yes, you'll you you will be welcome." Uh, I, I if they started to close it, we'd have to talk to our lawyers about trying to change it. But I don't see that happening. I think they want to have the relationship with the community. They want to hear what people have to say. When's the last time you were in the market? Oh my gosh, it's been it's been quite some time. A few years, oh, probably. Wow. Yeah, I was just there a couple of weeks ago. You know, the entire tower, the clock tower, is covered in covered in scaffolding. So they're obviously working on the building. But you know, you can see where the the, the the cold cases are old. I know there are a lot of electrical problems in there. And I was definitely kind of looking around to see, you know, a lot of people are doing like weird, you know, extension cord connections to their cold cases. You're, you're describing those cold cases as old. And that makes me sad because I think I covered the stories when they replaced them. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm as old, older than they are. I drove past it on Sunday and I mean, it was a beautiful day, but there were so many people out and about, and one of the parking lots was completely full. Remember how it was such a big controversy of whether they should charge for parking? But that's not stopping people from going. No, and the charging for parking actually was a good thing because it kept turnover. And in the past, people go park there and just go all over Ohio City. It's like free for 90 minutes, and then it's a dollar an hour after that. It's super reasonable. Like, it shouldn't stop anyone from those lots, though, do serve the the whole community, though. I mean, they do serve all of the businesses in that area. Yeah. But but, yeah. but it has churn. And if you're a, a merchant there, you want to have that churn. Lisa, what do you want to see happen in the market since you're the more frequent user? I would like to see more seating. Right now, there is no seating to get, you know, if you buy like a bratwurst, you know, or whatever, there's nowhere to sit. So I really like to see Produce Row, which looked empty to me the last time I was there. You know, um, that's what I would like to see, more seating and maybe more prepared foods as well. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Monday. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening to this podcast.